My name is Anthony, and uh, I have the honor and privilege of being one of the pastors here, uh, as well as the great joy of being able to open the scriptures with you and think about our God and who he is and what he's done and why all of that matters. Um, if you're new to our community, um, we typically, uh, when we gather together on Sundays, uh, spend some, some significant time in the scriptures um, thinking about um, our God and who he is, uh, specifically through the person and work of Jesus to which the scriptures are pointing us to and letting us uh, get catch a glimpse of and, and really be captivated by this Jesus um, who is the Christ, and uh, we typically do this by taking a theme or a topic, uh, one of the books of the Bible, and looking at it for several weeks in a row. And so uh, a number of weeks ago, we're actually in part seven, we started this series um, that we've titled The King's Cross. And uh, what we're thinking about and considering is uh, this particular section found in the Gospel according to Mark. Um, if you're not familiar with, with the scriptures, um, it's really made up into two sections, but it's one big story. Uh, there's all of human history kind of told through the, the story of Israel in the Old Testament and then leading up to um, Jesus Christ um, in the New Testament. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are gospel narratives um, to which these guys are recording many of the things that Jesus taught, but also his death and his resurrection. Mark, um, which is the second gospel, is writing uh, most likely from the, uh, the experience and the words of Peter, who was one of Jesus' earliest followers and friends and one of his disciples as well. And in chapters 11 through 16, what we find is, uh, is Mark narrowing the focus into uh, the final week of Jesus' life, um, as well as his, his death and his resurrection. And uh, we've been looking into this section um, since the beginning of the year, and we're going to all the way through Easter, um, because uh, we, we think it's just a good season to, to stop and to pause and to think about this particular uh, portion of Jesus' life, and namely leading up to his death and his resurrection. As we approach Easter, it's just a, a good time to, uh, to pause and think deeply about this season. Um, and so uh, we've been doing this, just taking section by section and uh, letting you in uh, the week before we enter in uh, to, to the following week, obviously, if it's the week before, of the passage in which we're going to be teaching from. And so today we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there and bookmark it. And uh, as I mentioned during announcements, if you don't have one, you forgot one, you don't own one, uh, some scattered around in some of the chairs, feel free to use one of those. And uh, certainly if you don't own one, keep it. It's our gift to you. Um, but next week, um, so that you can be prepared throughout this week um, as you can meditate on, read through, even memorize, but discuss in your small groups. Um, next week, we're going to be in uh, verses 10 through 25 of Mark 14, and so we want to uh, let you in on that ahead of time so that you can think through those things and show up with, um, you know, having thought through it and discussed it in your small group and so forth. So um, today, verses uh, 1 through 9 of chapter 14 is where we're going to be. It's a really amazing story, um, one of my favorites in all of Jesus's life and ministry. And so uh, if you have a Bible, let's go ahead and turn there. I'm going to uh, read the section, and then uh, I'll pray briefly. A um, little bit of introduction and outline as to where we're going. So, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes, they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. We're actually going to get back to this section next week as we think more about the Passover. But carry on. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at a table, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. So they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Beautiful. Um, let's pray. 
Father, thank you again for uh, the opportunity to, uh, to gather this morning, um, specifically to be able to, to sing to you, um, to be able to open up the scriptures and uh, catch a glimpse of your son, which is what we're asking that you would do by your spirit. But even more than these things, to be able to come to the table and be reminded of his broken body, of his shed blood, of the forgiveness of sin, of the hope of eternal life, of the fact that one day he's going to come and make all things new. And we ask uh, that this morning as we dig into this story, um, that you by your spirit would, would help us to catch a glimpse of your son that would mold and shape us um, more into his image and likeness. And we ask these things in the most matchless, the most precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. Uh, I don't think it would take too much effort for us to... Uh, maybe see uh, the great deal of polarization, um, segregation, um, even in our own country. You should probably see it even more, more clearly in others. But, I mean, all you got really got to do is just scroll through a news feed and see that there is a great polarization amongst people. And that's not just current. The, the country was even kind of, in a sense, founded on this, where we segregated ourselves from another nation and declared independence. Then we started putting out all of these, these laws that also... Um, maybe unbeknownst or subconsciously, not necessarily intentionally, um, were made that also like just bred the segregation and it just kept on moving. Whether it's male or female, whether it's race-related, whether it's socioeconomic, um, we can just tell that there's a lot of polarization, there's a lot of segregation in our world. And one of the most uh, amazing and beautiful things about Jesus is how he steps into that. In, and it could be any society across the world, but here in this society in which the story is told, there's also great segregation and polarization. And he steps into it on purpose to do something about it. He sees that, that people are at odds with each other, that we're inclined to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to and think of other people maybe as we, we ought not to. And, uh, and he steps into that. And he steps into it to do something about it because really... Uh, one of the main pieces of the heart of Jesus is to fix what has gone wrong in and within humanity. He wants to see people reconciled to each other. He wants to see a new humanity, one that is uh, saturated and really defined by love, by peace, by joy, by uh, solid and good relationships where people view each other properly, treat each other properly. And, and here what we find in Jesus in the story is doing precisely that in a couple of ways. And so I want to think with you about Jesus stepping in and really caring about the reconciliation of humanity um, under, the, under these two uh, simple headings. The first is just how it reveals Jesus, namely that it's going to reveal that he loves the least. Um, and we see that with the leper and with the woman, um, but also how it is that he wants worship. We see that with the woman and her worship in his conversation with the guys. And those might seem like two things that are kind of like two separate sermons, but uh, as we get towards the end, you're going to see how both these things kind of come together, and it's, it's really quite important. So let's think first of all about how this reveals Jesus, namely that he loves the least. If you look back with me at the beginning of the story, there's a really important note in here to set the stage. It says, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper and as he was reclining at a table. Now, this might not seem like that big of a deal to us, kind of like a passing thing that Mark lays out for us, that he was at this home of Simon the leper. But notice a couple things first about the state of this guy's existence, that he was a leper. We'll talk about leprosy in just a second, and also the Jewish tradition surrounding it, why this is such a big deal. But notice, first of all, just the title given to him, that he is Simon the leper. I mean, back in this time, right, if you read through the gospel narratives, you're going to notice the way that people are named. So you get, like, Joseph of Arimathea. 
It's because that's where he was from. So it's part of his identity, right? That's part of who he is. You notice Jesus is often called the son of the carpenter because that's part of his identity, his family, his lineage, right? Here what you have is Simon stripped away from all of that, stripped away from community, stripped away from anything that he's even done in life, and he gets this title. And the title is simply the leper. Like that's just who he is. And this is a huge deal because these people, man, they went through extreme difficulty. Leprosy was no joke back in that time, and there was no cure for it. In fact, I want to read for you sort of what it was like from a Jewish historian named Alfred Edhersheim. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it sounds really cool. So the disease, he says, which we today call leprosy, generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. Soon the skin in such spots loses its original color. It gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and ears, begins to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion. Fingers drop off or are absorbed. Toes are affected similarly. His throat becomes hoarse, and you can now not only see, feel, and smell the leper, but you can hear his rasping voice. And if you stay with him for some time, you can even imagine a peculiar taste in your mouth, probably due to the odor. Say that this is one of the most devastating diseases that a person could ever be struck with. And um, this had severe implications, not just on their physical being, but also on their emotional, psychological, and spiritual being, because this person was cast out. This was an extremely contagious disease. And so this person would be cast out and sort of put into a colony where they would be living only amongst other lepers. To visit this person would be to put yourself at some kind of crazy risk as well, because if you were to catch it, obviously, you'd have to go through this and you would die as well. This person, if they were ever to enter into um, any sort of social gathering, upon their entrance, they would have to shout, unclean, unclean, to let everybody know that this unclean leper was now in their midst. I mean, it was just a, a terrible place to be in. But not only that, these people were often, during the times of Jesus, looked at as those who were sort of cursed by God. Now, this wasn't always the case in Jewish history, but leading up to Jesus within the century or two prior to this, people began to attach this stigma to them, where the reason that they had leprosy was because they had done something terrible, something evil, and so they are, the, in fact, cursed by God. This is, this is a state of existence that you wouldn't want to wish on even your worst enemy. I mean, could you even just imagine if somebody close to you contracted this disease? Like, imagine if this was your son or your daughter. Imagine if it was your mother or your father or like one of your best friends. You're, you're now in a place where you have probably bought into the idea that this person has done something terrible and is cursed. The very least, you can't really hang out with them anymore and they're going to go through some serious pain and devastation for the last who knows how long of their life as they face this. Like to, to imagine a person going through that and you having to be separated from them as they suffer through would be devastating, right? It would be painful to know and to think that your loved one would be going through this. Jesus enters into this scene and he goes to the leper's house. And this isn't just like Jesus in a moment. Like this is the very nature and character of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. Like this is just what he is about. In fact, at the beginning of Mark, we read this story about lepers to kind of paint the picture of just the character and nature of Jesus. A leper came to him imploring him and kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean and moved with pity, really like compassion, sympathy. He stretched out his hand and he touched him 
And he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Notice this. Jesus, Jesus doesn't just stand back and say, oh, I can make you clean, be clean. Jesus sees the leper and he touches the leper. You don't touch lepers. But Jesus does because this is just part of who Jesus is. This is just what Jesus is like. He goes after the leper. Like to get into Simon's house, most likely he would probably be greeted with a kiss. That's the way the Jews tended to greet each other when they invited them into their homes. When they were sitting down at this table, they were probably rubbing shoulders with each other. This is, this is not just Jesus doing something really weird out of the ordinary. This is the way Jesus is. This is who he is. This is what he's like. So those whom the rest of society looks at and says, you're cursed by God, or you are just so disgusting that I can't be around you, right? Or if I were to help you, I would contract this thing myself. To those people, like those marginalized people, those on the outside, these are the people that Jesus goes to on purpose. He goes to them because he wants to create this new humanity, like this is who he is, this is what he's about. And this sort of thing just moves me. I was telling Tracy earlier that... Um, Tracy's our kids coordinator upstairs, part of our leadership team as well. I was telling her, like, this story moves me so much because there's something about the, the reconciliation of people who were once at odds with each other, and not just individuals when they seek forgiveness and they mend, like, that is a beautiful thing, but even whole groups of people. There's something about when you watch the walls of racism come down that just oh, it grabs my heart. I've been to D.C. a couple times, and every time I walk into the Lincoln Memorial, I just lose it to think that somebody was willing to step into that massive divide and risk their life so that humanity might be restored is just such a beautiful thing. Recently I was listening to a podcast and they were telling the story. They're going crazy up there. They're telling a story about um, how the word evangelical came about. Not really important, although do some look into some history. It's really interesting. But they were talking about Billy Graham. And uh, I didn't realize this during the time of, of Billy's preaching. Um, he would go to these churches, this is in the 60s, and uh, when he walked into these churches to begin um, his crusades and whatnot, he would notice that there were ropes in the middle of the rooms, and if he, you know, when he even got to larger um, facilities, there was ropes because there was the whites over here and, and the blacks over here. And, and this, this was going on in churches, like set up by people who claimed to be Jesus followers. And Billy Graham started going into these churches and said, I'm not, I'm not going to do this unless we take down the rope. And uh, one of his friends, he recounts Billy in this way. He says he actually physically took ropes down and symbolically in doing so said, look, we're all equal before God and we're all one together and every man has his right for the rights that we enjoy and want. He took a lead in the stand way back in those early days when it wasn't popular Bill has always had a love for people and has appreciated and understood in a very unique dimension the worth of an individual no matter what his or her race, color, ethnic background may be. Billy, even in the midst of a society that had believed these lies and was promulgating them even within what, what are called Christian churches, he enters in and he says, this, this is not the way that Jesus would want things. Like Jesus wants people to come together. He wants those who have much to reach those who have little and to build something new. Like that's what Jesus was about. And you see this with the leper. But not just with the leper. You see this also with the woman. 
And this might not come across at first, but what Jesus does here with this woman is extremely profound. And the only way you see this is if you really dig into the history of it. But notice what happens here as you carry on. It says, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and she poured it over his head. Now, Jesus here with this woman is also extremely significant. For a rabbi at his stature to be in a place, especially this kind of secluded place, with a woman was just something that the Jews did not do during this time. They were supposed to remain apart. I mean, women were, were segregated. They were essentially the marginalized during this time, right? They were, they were set to the side. In fact, here's some, here's some interesting things that you sh- should note about women during this time. Women weren't allowed to testify in court. In effect, this categorized them with Gentiles, minors, um, deaf mutes, and undesirables, quote-unquote, such as gamblers or the insane. If a woman was ever in the streets, she was to be heavily veiled and was prohibited from conversing with men. Respectable women were expected to stay within the confines of the home. The terminology for a prostitute was one who goes abroad. Most women were illiterate since the rabbis didn't consider it incumbent upon women to learn to read. Women weren't allowed to participate in public prayer at the temple, and some Pharisees allowed divorce for any reason that displeased the husband, even poor cooking, which would leave the woman devastated because no man's going to marry a woman that was already married, and then if she had children, now she's stuck trying to figure out how to um, provide for those kids and to raise them even on her own. They say that many of the Pharisees, the religious elites during this time, when they would pray, they would say, thank God that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Like, this is the way that they were perceived. They were second-class citizens during this time. Now, Jesus, when he goes into Simon the leper's house, and this woman comes in, just the fact that they're even there interacting is amazing. But what she does is particularly amazing. She anoints Jesus, and he says specifically for his burial. Now, what is this about, right? Why would you go to somebody before they die and be like, essentially prophetic, I know you're going to die and anoint, right? Why would you do that? Well, back in this time, you've got to understand that the anointing um, had a lot more to do with than simply getting ready for your body to, to die or to, to pass from this life, right? It was, it was far more than that. And anointing in Jesus' time, especially with the, the proclamations that he had made about himself, had to do with what he was actually going to do in his burial. And what I mean by that is that it wasn't simply that Jesus was going to die. If you recall, Jesus, when he, tells the, when he talks to his disciples about what he's doing on the cross, it's not simply that he's dying for the forgiveness of sin, although that is true. And it's not simply that he's dying to show a great display of love, although that also is true. When Jesus talks about his death, Jesus is talking in a much more robust, big-picture way. Those things are included. But when Jesus talks about his death, he's talking about becoming king. When Jesus speaks of his hour... In the Gospel of John, if you, if you trace the thread of Jesus' hour through the Gospel of John, he'll say, my hour has not yet come, or they couldn't kill him because his hour had not yet come. And then he enters into Jerusalem right before he's going to die and become king, and he says, the hour has come. The hour for Jesus to overcome Satan, sin, and death has come. That's what he's saying. I'm going to topple the kingdoms of this world, and I'm going to take my rightful throne as king. Like, that's what he's talking about. When she enters in, and she anoints him, She's anointing him before he takes his throne, right? Not the thrones like we have in the world where we set up huge palaces and then you get that special room with the gold on the walls and then you sit on the throne and when people come in, they bow down and they kiss your ring or something like that. This is a throne that is a cross. 
This is, this is what Jesus is being prepared for. Now, the reason that this is so significant is because the people who anoint for the king to take his throne was a huge responsibility and role, like huge responsibility and role. In fact, if you look back to the first great king of Israel in 1 Samuel, Samuel, who was a prophet, he anoints the king. It says, Samuel took a flask of oil, he poured it on his head, he kissed him, and he said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel and you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies and this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So Samuel, a prophet, gets to anoint the king before he takes his throne. That's who anoints. And where did Jesus just come from? Like Jesus just came from the temple. If you were going to get anointed, that's where you should get anointed. Not in a leper's house. You get anointed in the amazing building where everybody goes, wow, it's amazing. No, Jesus goes to the leper's house to get anointed and to get anointed by who? Not the priests who are in the temple, not even his own disciples. He could have turned to them and said, one of you needs to do this. But no, he lets this woman, the marginalized, the outcast, take on this amazing role of saying, I get to pronounce this guy as king. Like he does this with a woman. In that time, this would have been absolutely absurd. But what Jesus is doing here and letting her do this is the exact same thing that he's doing with the leper. This person was outcast. This person was marginalized. This person was seen to be cursed by God. So was she. And he's doing the same thing with her. He's stepping in for the sake of reconciliation, for the sake of renewal. And other, what he's doing also with this woman is he's, he's exalting her value. He's exalting her worth back to what God always intended it to be in the garden. But since, since sin and, and, and throughout history, like people, groups, not just lepers, but also even women have been degraded, been denigrated, as, have looked at, upon as less than maybe that of even you know, just the, the male gender. It's just, it's just what we've done throughout history. But in the garden, it wasn't so. In the garden, when God made man and woman, he gave to them equal dignity, value, and worth. And, and he spoke of women in this like amazing way. If you look back into Genesis, here's what it says. So the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Pay attention here. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Hold on to that word. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This word helper is really deceiving in English because when we think of helpers, you tend to think of maybe like, you know, the the gopher on a construction site, right? Where the, the guy who is leading the job has the ability to do the whole thing himself. But instead, he passes off some of his ability to somebody else. So I could go get the wrench myself, but instead I want you to help me, right? That's the way we tend to think of it. Or like as a parent, you could do the the work in your house by yourself, but you pass off what you could do, some of it, to your child. And you say, here, help me with this. And And so they help you do, but what you could already do. That's not the way this word is used in the scriptures, though. This, this word is used 11 times in the Psalms repeatedly to refer or to, to paint a picture of what this word is really all about. And I want to show you some of them. Notice this in Psalm 33 and 70. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, our shield. The same Hebrew word, ezer, of which the woman is that was taken from the side of man is referred to here as, it's like the picture of the Lord as a shield, right? So this guy, 
is in, he's in a situation where he needs something that he can't do on his own. And there's a shield. But I'm poor and needy, it says, hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. So he's trapped. He can't get out. And the helper is the deliverer doing something that he can't do, you see. Or you carry on in Psalm 115 or 121. Notice the repetition of this. It's like all-encompassing. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. See this? The protector even here. Now notice this last one. My help, my easer, same word used, comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Like how do you use that word to refer to a woman in Genesis 1 and then equate it to God who makes heaven and earth? Like you see what Jesus is doing with this woman is absolutely extraordinary. He is raising her value. He's raising her worth. He's raising her dignity to bring humanity back to what it was always meant to be. You see what's going on here. It's absolutely astonishing. But not only that, the, the placement of this anointing. And Mark is doing something here, right? Mark is taking, he's taking some, some, some license to let us in on like what's really taking place here by bookending this anointing. And here's what I mean, right? If you track through the, the gospel of Mark, he bookends things constantly. So it tells a story, then it'll tell some stories in between, and then another story. And those two stories are meant to help you to see what everything in between is, right? So for instance, uh, when we talked through the fig tree and the temple a few weeks ago, Jesus curses the fig tree, goes into the temple, turns over the tables, and then goes back to the fig tree and says it's not going to bear any fruit. The point is to help you to see what the temple was really, the turning of the tables is really all about. This anointing isn't the only anointing in, in Mark's gospel. There's one more at the end. And it's, it's after Jesus dies. And notice what happens. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. In other words, Jesus' kingship is set in the middle of women anointing him. Like that, in that day, that's just astonishing what Jesus is doing here. Again, elevating the value, the dignity, the worth of women. Or if, if that weren't enough, Paul the Apostle will later on reflect in the work of Jesus and even him as a Pharisee who probably prayed that prayer that we mentioned earlier. Thank you, God, I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. He says this in Galatians 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's not male or female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. Like, to the people that Paul was speaking to, Gentiles even. Jesus is doing this work amongst Jews, but Paul is speaking this to Gentiles who are probably even worse in their denigration of, human, of, of women. And here he's saying that men and women are equal in dignity, value, and worth. And if that weren't enough, Jesus, after he dies and he rises, who does he go to? Look at this story in John. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've, slayed, where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus rises from the dead and the first person that he goes to is a woman. Not Peter, not James, not John who got to see him at the Mount of Transfiguration and see tons of miracles and be there doing stuff alongside him. Not them. 
a woman he goes to. And then what happens? She leaves, and she's the very first person to proclaim that the Messiah is alive. A woman is the very first person. Like it's, it's just absolutely astonishing. What Jesus is doing here is, man, he is entering into a broken world with broken systems, and he's doing something about it. Something so much so that 2,000 years later, we're reading the story of it. And there's reason for that. Because Jesus knows, God knows, that we are inclined to do the same thing. Whether it's with lepers or whether it's gender-based, we are inclined to do the same thing where we think of ourselves or even our ethnicity, our race. We think of ourselves more highly than others. We think of others less than what they are. We're just inclined to do it. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I know it even about me. Subconsciously, we see people. We hear the words that they say. We look at what they're wearing. We scroll through their Facebook feed and we immediately put them in that box. That's one of those people. They're just cardboard cutouts that just get labeled. We're inclined to do it. But what Jesus is all about is saying, no, no, those are human beings. Every single one of them made in his image. And here he's talking broadly, I think, about women. And I just want to say something to you, to you women and, and to you guys for just a second here. Ladies, I'm sure you've heard this before, but I'm going to say it again. If you ever, if you ever think of yourself, if you ever feel about yourself less than this, don't believe that lie. Don't let some, yeah, don't. Don't let some, I wasn't saying don't to you, sorry. Don't, don't, don't let, don't let some individual male, don't let the things that many males have said to you, or even other women sometimes, don't let the covers of magazines, don't let the movies, don't let the lies that you believed control you. You are worthy of God's infinite love. That's what Jesus has come for, to let you know that. And brothers, treat women like that. Like, let's, let's take this seriously. Let's think about the opportunity that we have to let women know how valued they are by God. Because we have the ability, we have the power to be able to do that, to speak truth into women, to cast aside the things that actually are continuing to destroy them and bring devastation to the entire gender. We have the ability to put those things aside and instead compliment, speak beauty, speak life into women, whether it's your wife, whether it's your children, whether it's a stranger. <laughs> Guys, we have power to be able to step into a broken world and bring value to people who feel invaluable undervalued, I should say, right? But notice Jesus, um, and this might seem like a separate sermon, but Jesus really wants our worship too. You'll see how these things come together, but notice how it carries on. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii given to the poor, and so they scolded her. Of course they would. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. A little bit of a side note. Please don't use that verse right in the middle there to create some kind of excuse to not help the poor. That's just a side note. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. 
What we find here, though, is Jesus wanting worship. We see him happy about, excited about, thrilled about her actually bringing this to him and worshiping him. Now, what is this really all about? Well, a couple things. What worship actually is and what it looks like from this story, right? Worship is a word that comes from an old English word. Um, And it's really broken up into two parts. It's worth and shape. And the idea is that you give value and worth to something. And as you do, you're saying, go ahead, shape me, right? Because that's what happens when we ascribe value and worth to things. When When we look at what it is that we have, whether it's time, whether it's energy, whether it's resources, and we look at something else and we go, I'm willing to trade this for that, what we're saying is, I value that thing. So I'm willing to take the, the time that I have that is limited and say, well, I'd rather have that than, than my time, or I'd, I'd like to use my time for that. And so what we're saying is, I value that thing. That thing is worth my time. And as we do that, whether it's with time, whether it's with resource, whether it's with energy, as we do that, that thing will inevitably shape us, right? Because what we love shapes us, right? That's, that's, who we be, that's how we become the people that we are. It's just expressions of love in all of our decisions, right? And we can, of course, love terrible things that bring destruction to us and to the people around us. So as we ascribe value and worth to things that destroy us, like we, we're loving it and it's bringing pain and anguish upon us and even out into the world. But that's what worship is really all about. It's just ascribing value or worth for the sake of being shaped by it. Now, what we have here with this woman is her deeply intentional worship or ascribing of value and worth to Jesus, or we might just say her loving of Jesus. Right? And she does this by bringing this alabaster flask of oil that says is very costly. Notice a few things. Notice, first of all, about how it is that she is intentional behind this, right? Where she thinks to herself, Jesus is coming back. So Jesus has gone back into Jerusalem and to Bethany multiple times. This is why they say he left the temple. He's most likely going back to friend's house right out on the outskirts. And here, she knows that he's coming. And she's thinking to herself, okay, Jesus is coming. What am I going to bring to him that is, that is valuable enough to show him my great love? What am I going to bring? And she decides that what she's going to bring is this alabaster flask of oil. Now, it says very costly, 300 denarii. That's, that's what most scholars believe to be the equivalent of an entire year's wages. Okay? Now let me just ask you a question. Do you have anything in your possession right now, or even in your home, that is worth an entire year's wages? It's very likely that even if you own a car, it's not worth an entire year's wages. If it is, they shouldn't have sold you that car because you're incapable of paying for it. <laughs> but, but, but nobody has this sort of thing just lying around, right? I mean... It, if you have this lying around, it's either because like, you need to make sure that you have a safety net. Like During this time, of course, that, that would be super significant. You get one year of bad weather in an agrarian culture, and boom, you're done, right? So you keep this for savings. But, but also, you would probably be getting this, not from, not from necessarily your own earnings, especially if it's a woman. You're probably getting this as an heirloom. Just say it's passed from generation to generation. Here, hold on to this just in case something terrible happens. I want to leave a safety net. Which would mean that this has significance on multiple levels, right? It has the significance of monetary, right? Just money, right? There is, there's provision right here, a, a year's salary. But also, this probably came from her parents, maybe even her grandparents or even her great-grandparents. So it's got sentimental value to it as well. And this is the thing that she brings to Jesus. She says, what am I going to bring? She picks this thing, and then not only that, she pursues him. What would it take for you to find something that expensive and then go, where is he? Oh, he's at the leper's house. Yay! 
Would you take your most expensive thing and go to a leper's house with it? No, that's absurd. But she wants to worship Jesus so badly that she finds this thing that is the most expensive thing that she has and she's willing to go into the house of a leper. Like, Jesus is receiving this worship because he recognizes that the only reason anybody would ever do something like this would because, was be because they love him so deeply. And he's willing to receive that love. This is why Paul, later on in Romans, he'll say this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies or your lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or we could just say, love. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. So Jesus wants us to see him as the most valuable object of our affections, because he knows that in us seeing him that way, he will be the one who shapes us. And he wants that because other things shaping us destroy us. Right? When we give our time, our energy, our resources without even realizing it to loves that seek to steal, kill, and destroy, that's what they do. Right? You give yourself over to things, they shape you, you become the kind of person that you never really wanted to be anyways. And Jesus is like, no, 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 turn to me and I'll help you become the fullest human being that you were made to be, that you were meant to be. And as we love him, that's what he does. He shapes us into that kind of a person. Now what on earth does this have to do with him loving the least? Like he wants our worship and he loves the least. I would, I would argue that these things are inextricably connected. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus here, I think, is provoking his disciples and all those who claim him as king to reconciliation and to renewal through worship. But worship might not be exactly what we think it is. And here's what I mean by that. If, if somebody says worship to you, outside of the definition or description that I just gave, most likely our minds would go to Oh, those songs that we sing in church, right? The worship music, right? Because it's a worship team, so it's the, that's what it is, right? Or you might think more broadly and go, oh, the service, the worship service, so it includes the teaching, it includes communion, so that's, that's what worship is. Or we might go to maybe our, our own, like, kind of private prayer time or devotional time or journaling time or reading time, like, and we go, oh, that's worship. Certainly, those things are worship, Absolutely. But when Jesus talks about worship, I think he's talking far more broadly. Because I think what Jesus is talking about when he said he wants us to worship him has to do with loving him. And what does loving him actually look like? Does it look like just coming to church on a Sunday or opening up your Bible for 10 minutes and journaling? No, loving Jesus, those things are included for sure. Don't stop coming to church. (laughs) Those things are included. But it's far more than that. If you look at what Jesus speaks to in terms of loving him, look at just in John 14 and 15. He says, if you love me, or here's what love looks like, or here's what worshiping Jesus looks like, you will keep my commandments. What is that? Greatest commandment I give to you. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me or worships me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. You see, over and over again, Jesus speaks to the idea of worshiping him or loving him as actively loving other people, right? So it's not just this. Listen closely. When you get the opportunity 
to look a child in the eyes and you can tell that they're going through difficulty and you get to be the person who says, come here, I'm here for you and give them a hug. You're worshiping Jesus. Right? When, when you see a person who just seems down and out and just needs an ear to listen to them, you're worshiping Jesus. Like when you, when you, when you shovel your neighbor's sidewalk, you're worshiping Jesus. When, when you look at your spouse and you see them for the value that God has made them with, and you think about their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations, their goals, and you take your time, your energy, your, your resources, and you pour into that so that they can flourish, you're worshiping Jesus. When, when you look at your children and you see them as the great gift that God has given instead of little crazy demons, you, and you love them, like you pour yourself out for them, you're worshiping Jesus. When you, when you think about your own life, when you think about the gifts, the talents, the, the opportunities that, that God has given to you, like when you take those things into real consideration as gifts and you begin to use them, your time, your energy, your resources in ways to bring love, reconciliation, renewal into the world, like you're worshiping Jesus. It doesn't have to look flashy and people don't even need to know about it. But you can live every single moment with love and therefore worshiping Jesus. That's why Paul will say, he'll say that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, bring glory to God. How do you bring glory to God while you eat a meal? Well, you're giving thanks. You're giving like an attitude of thanksgiving that God has given this to you. You share it with somebody else. You can actually worship or love Jesus while you eat. What a great God. What a great God. You get to worship Jesus. Now, now listen. When you see other people do this, when you see other people giving themselves the way that this woman did, that also is life-changing, right? When you see somebody ascribe value, ascribe love, ascribe worth into this world to another human being, man, that shapes us. In other words, our worship actually transforms the world. Like, think about that for a second. You're, when you take, your, take, take all of what it is that you have and you love Jesus above all things, you're actually bringing heaven to earth. Like, that's what you're doing. And you've probably seen this before. I've seen this before. Where it, like, literally transforming me by other people worshiping. This last weekend, I told you guys that um, in service that I was leaving from here to go into Ludlow Prison with some, with some other folks who uh, go in there week in and week out. You guys, prison. You, you want to talk about a leper's house. Like, that's a leper's house. That's the place where, where we go. We want nothing to do with you. We build walls and we put barbed wire around them. We confine them into small spaces. We treat them like animals. We degrade them. We think lowly of them. Certainly, many of them have made terrible decisions. So have I. Certainly, maybe there needs to be some restrictions in how they interact in society. Frankly, there probably should be some restrictions with me too. (laughs) But these people, they go in there every single week. And they sit down and they rub shoulders with these guys and they listen to their stories and they pray with them and they befriend them. And I got to see them all doing this. I went in for one weekend. They do this every single week, building relationships with the least of these. And although it was transformative to listen to stories and to befriend these guys, what was really transformative was watching the church, watching the church worship Jesus inside of the darkest places in our country.
Like that is transformative. Those people are doing an amazing thing. Not just that. I know uh, plenty of families in this church who have looked at the outcast, the marginalized children who sadly, their parents made some terrible decisions and those poor kids end up in a system. And that system tends to create this cycle. But some of you in this very room, you've decided we're not going to let that stay that way. And you stepped into that cycle and you took these kids into your house. And you began fostering them like you're doing the work of Jesus. And don't, don't think lowly of that. At the very least, it's transforming me. Watching you do that is transformative. Those of you who serve even here, whether it's in the kids' ministry upstairs, whether it's downstairs, opening up the doors early, giving people a cup of coffee, saying hi to them, like, that's worship. That's transforming the world. Don't think lowly of these things. Jesus enters into the leper's house. He lets the woman anoint because Jesus wants to see a new humanity and a new world. And we get to be a part of that, friends. Like, that's why we're here. Like when we first started the church, you notice in our mission statement, it's revealing Christ by what? Reconciling people, renewing our city. Why on earth would you want to be in a dance club in downtown Springfield? The lepers. The marginalized. That's why we're here, friends. You get an opportunity to transform the world. So let me pray for us, and then I'll invite us into song and communion. Father, thank you so much for this community of people. Thank you so much for the great love that, that they have for each other, the great love that they have for, for the lost, for the marginalized, for the outcast. Thank you so much for the work that they do right before my very eyes that is transforming me. And Father, I plead with you that you would continue by the strength of your spirit, help us to go to the leper's house. Not just say that we love the leper, but actually rub shoulders with the leper. God, help us to see where power has been corrupting and help us to do something about it. Father, we trust that your spirit can. You spoke and your spirit hovering brought light out of darkness and beauty out of chaos. Your spirit has brought life to these bones and we trust that your spirit will bring life into this world. Help us to step into that. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.